Chapter Eight, Part One of Hypatia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eugene Smith. Hypatia by Charles Kingsley. Chapter Eight: The East Wind, Part One. As Hypatia went forth the next morning in all her glory with a crowd of philosophers and philofasters students and fine gentlemen following her in reverend admiration across the street to her lecture-room a ragged beggar-man accompanied by a huge and villainous-looking dog planted himself right before her and extending a dirty hand whined for an alms hypatia whose refined taste could never endure the sight much less the contact of anything squalid and degraded recoiled a little and bade the attendant slave get rid of the man with a coin several of the younger gentlemen however considered themselves adepts in that noble art of upsetting then in vogue in the african universities to which we all have reason enough to be thankful seeing that it drove st augustine from carthage to rome and they in compliance with the usual fashion of tormenting any simple creature who came in their way by mystification and insult commenced a series of personal witticisms which the beggar bore stoically enough the coin was offered him but he blandly put aside the hand of the giver and keeping his place on the pavement seemed inclined to dispute hypatia's farther passage what do you want send the wretch and his frightful dog away gentlemen said the poor philosopher in some trepidation i know that dog said one of them it is aban ezra's where did you find it before it was lost you rascal where your mother found you when she palmed you off upon her good man my child in the slave market fair sibyl have you already forgotten your humblest pupil as these young dogs have who are already trying to upset their master and instructor in the angelic science of bullying and the beggar lifting his broad straw hat disclosed the features of raphael aben ezra hypatia recoiled with a shriek of surprise ah you are astonished at what i pray to see you sir thus why then you have been preaching to us all a long time the glory of abstraction from the allurements of sense it augurs ill surely for your estimate either of your pupils or of your own eloquence if you are so struck with consternation because one of them has actually at last obeyed you what is the meaning of this masquerade most excellent sir asked hypatia and a dozen voices beside ask cyril I am on my way to Italy in the character of the new Diogenes, to look, like him, for a man. When I have found one, I shall feel great pleasure in returning to acquaint you with the amazing news. Farewell. I wish to look once more at a certain countenance, though I have turned, as you see, cynic, and intend henceforth to attend no teacher but my dog, who will luckily charge no fees for instruction. If she did, i must go untaught for my ancestral wealth made itself wings yesterday morning you are aware doubtless of the plebiscitum against the jews 
which was carried into effect under the auspices of a certain holy tribune of the people? Infamous! And dangerous, my dear lady. Success is inspiriting, and Theon's house is quite as easily sacked as the Jews' quarter. Beware! Come, come, Aban Ezra, cried the young men. You are far too good company for us to lose you for that rascally patriarch's fancy. We will make a subscription for you, eh? And you shall live with each of us, month and month about. We shall quite lose the trick of joking without you. Thank you, gentlemen, but really you have been my butts far too long for me to think of becoming yours. Madam, one word in private before I go. Hapadia leant forward, and speaking in Syriac, whispered hurriedly, Oh, stay, sir, I beseech you. You are the wisest of my pupils, perhaps my only true pupil. My father will find some concealment for you from these wretches. And if you need money, remember, he is your debtor. We have never repaid you the gold which... Fairest muse, that was but my entrance fee to Parnassus. It is I who am in your debt, and I have brought my arrears in the form of this opal ring. As for shelter near you, he went on, lowering his voice and speaking like her in Syriac, Hypatia the Gentile is far too lovely for the peace of mind of Raphael the Jew. And he drew from his finger Miriam's ring and offered it. Impossible, said Hypatia, blushing scarlet. I cannot accept it. I beseech you, it is the last earthly burden I have, except this snail's prison of flesh and blood. My dagger will open a crack through that when it becomes intolerable. But as I do not intend to leave my shell, if I can help it, except just when and how I choose, and as, if I take this ring with me, some of Heraclean's circumcellions will assuredly knock my brains out for the sake of it, I must entreat. Never! Can you not sell the ring and escape to Synesius? He will give you shelter. The hospitable hurricane! Shelter, yes, but rest, none. As soon pitch my tent in the crater of Etna. Why, he will be trying day and night to convert me to that eclectic farrago of his, which he calls philosophic Christianity. Well, if you will not have the ring, it is soon disposed of. We Easterns know how to be magnificent and vanish as the lords of the world ought. And he turned to the philosophic crowd. Here, gentlemen of Alexandria, does any gay youth wish to pay his debts once and for all? Behold the rainbow of Solomon, an opal such as Alexandria never saw before, which would buy any one of you, and his Macedonian papa, and his Macedonian mamma, and his Macedonian sisters, and horses, and parrots, and peacocks, twice over, in any slave market in the world. Any gentleman who wishes to possess a jewel worth ten thousand gold pieces will only need to pick it out of the gutter into which I throw it. Scramble for it, you young Phaedrias and Pamphili. There are Ladus and Thedus enough about who will help you to spend it. And raising the jewel on high, he was in the act of tossing it into the street when his arm was seized from behind and the ring snatched from his hand. He turned fiercely enough, 
and saw behind him her eyes flashing fury and contempt old miriam bran sprang at the old woman's throat in an instant but recoiled again before the glare of her eye raphael called the dog off and turning quietly to the disappointed spectators it is all right my luckless friends you must raise money for yourselves after all which since the departure of my nation will be a somewhat more difficult matter than ever the overruling destinies whom as you all know so well when you are getting tipsy not even philosophers can resist have restored the rainbow of solomon to its original possessor farewell queen of philosophy when i find the man you shall hear of it mother i am coming with you for a friendly word before we part though he went on laughing as the two walked away together it was a scurvy trick of you to balk one of the nation of the exquisite pleasure of seeing those heathen dogs scrambling in the gutter for his bounty hypatia went into the museum utterly bewildered by this strange meeting and its still stranger end she took care nevertheless to betray no sign of her deep interest till she found herself alone in her little waiting-room adjoining the lecture-hall and there throwing herself into a chair she sat and thought till she found to her surprise and anger the tears trickling down her cheeks not that her bosom held one spark of affection for raphael if there had ever been any danger of that the wily jew had himself taken care to ward it off by the sneering and frivolous tone with which he quashed every approach to deep feeling either in himself or in others as for his compliments to her beauty she was far too much accustomed to such to be either pleased or displeased by them but she felt as she said that she had lost perhaps her only true pupil and more perhaps her only true master for she saw clearly enough that under that silenus mask was hidden a nature capable of perhaps more than she dare think of she had always felt him her superior in practical cunning and that morning had proved to her what she had long suspected that he was possibly also her superior in that moral earnestness and strength of will for which she looked in vain among the enervated greeks who surrounded her and even in those matters in which he professed himself her pupil she had long been alternately delighted by finding that he alone of all her school seemed thoroughly and instinctively to comprehend her every word and chilled by the disagreeable suspicion that he was only playing with her and her mathematics and geometry and metaphysic and dialectic like a fencer practising with foils while he reserved his real strength for some object more worthy of him more than once some paradox or question of his had shaken her neatest systems into a thousand cracks and opened up ugly depths of doubt even on the most seemingly palpable certainties or some half-jesting allusion to those hebrew scriptures the quantity and quality of his faith in which he would never confess made her indignant at the notion that he considered himself in possession of a reserved ground of knowledge deeper and surer than her own in which he did not deign to allow her to share and yet she was irresistibly attracted to him that deliberate and consistent luxury of his from which she shrank 
he had always boasted that he was able to put on and take off at will like a garment and now he seemed to have proved his words to be a worthy rival of the great stoics of old time could zeno himself have asked more from frail humanity moreover raphael had been of infinite practical use to her he worked out unasked her mathematical problems he looked out authorities kept her pupils in order by his bitter tongue and drew fresh students to her lecture by the attractions of his wit his arguments and last but not least his unrivalled cook and cellar above all he acted the part of a fierce and valiant watchdog on her behalf against the knots of clownish and often brutal sophists the wrecks of the old cynic stoic and academic schools who with venom increasing after the want of parties with their decrepitude assailed the beautifully bespangled card-castle of neoplatonism as an empty medley of all greek philosophies with all eastern superstitions all such philistines had as yet dreaded the pen and tongue of raphael even more than those of the chivalrous bishop of cyrene though he certainly to judge from certain of his letters hated them as much as he could hate any human being which was after all not very bitterly but the visits of cynesius were few and far between the distance between carthage and alexandria and the labor of his diocese and worse than all the growing difference in purpose between him and his beautiful teacher made his protection all but valueless and now aben ezra was gone too and with him were gone a thousand plans and hopes to have converted him at last to a philosophic faith in the old gods to have made him her instrument for turning back the stream of human error ay how often had that dream crossed her and now who would take its place athanasius cynesius in his good nature might dignify him with the name of brother but to her he was a powerless pedant destined to die without having wrought any deliverance on the earth as indeed the event proved plutarch of athens he was superannuated Syrianus, a mere logician twisting aristotle to mean what she knew and he ought to have known aristotle never meant her father a man of triangles and conic sections how paltry they all looked by the side of the unfathomable jew spinners of charming cobwebs but would the flies condescend to be caught in them builders of pretty houses if people would but enter and live in them preachers of superfine morality which their admiring pupils never dreamt of practising without her she well knew philosophy must die in alexandria and was it her wisdom or other and more earthly charms of hers which enabled her to keep it alive sickening thought oh that she were ugly only to test the power of her doctrines ho oh, the odds were fearful enough already she would be glad of any help however earthly and carnal but was not the work hopeless what she wanted was men who could act while she thought and those were just the men whom she would find nowhere but she knew it too well in the hated christian priesthood and then that 
fearful Iphigenia's sacrifice loomed in the distance as inevitable. The only hope of philosophy was in her despair. She dashed away her tears and proudly entered the lecture hall, and ascended the tribune like a goddess amid the shouts of her audience. What did she care for them? Would they do what she told them? She was half through her lecture before she could recollect herself and banish from her mind the thought of Raphael. And at that point we will take the lecture up. Quote, truth. Where is truth but in the soul itself? Facts, objects, are but phantoms matter, woven, ghosts of this earthly night at which the soul sleeping here in the mire and clay of matter, shudders and names its own vague tremors sense and perception. Yet even as our nightly dreams stir in us the suspicion of mysterious and immaterial presences, unfettered by the bonds of time and space, so do these waking dreams, which we call sight and sound. They are divine messengers, whom Zeus, pitying his children, even when he pent them in this prison-house of flesh, appointed to arouse in them dim recollections of that real world of souls whence they came. Awakened once to them, seeing through the veil of sense and fact the spiritual truth of which they are but the accidental garment, concealing the very thing which they make palpable, the philosopher may neglect the fact for the doctrine, the shell for the kernel, the body for the soul, of which it is but the symbol and the vehicle. What matter, then, to the philosopher whether these names of men, Hector or Priam, Helen or Achilles, were ever visible as phantoms of flesh and blood before the eyes of men? What matter whether they spoke or thought, as he of Sios says they did? What matter, even, whether he himself ever had earthly life? The book is here the word which men call his. Let the thoughts thereof have been at first whose they may, now they are mine. I have taken them to myself, and thought them to myself, and made them parts of my own soul. Nay, they were and ever will be parts of me. For they, even as the poet was, even as I am, are but a part of the universal soul, what matter, then, what myths grew up around those mighty thoughts of ancient seers? Let others try to reconcile the cyclic fragments, or vindicate the catalogue of ships. What has the philosopher lost, though the former were proved to be contradictory, and the latter interpolated? The thoughts are there, and ours. Let us open our hearts lovingly to receive them, from whencesoever they may have come. As in men, so in books, the soul is all with which our souls must deal. And the soul of the book is whatsoever beautiful and true and noble we can find in it. It matters not to us whether the poet was altogether conscious of the meanings which we can find in him. Consciously or unconsciously to him, the meanings must be there. For were they not there to be seen, how could we see them? There are those among the uninitiate vulgar, and those, too, who carry under the philosophic cloak hearts still uninitiate, who revile such interpretations as merely the sophistic and arbitrary sports of fancy. 
it lies with them to show what homer meant if our spiritual meanings be absurd to tell the world why homer is admirable if that for which we hold him up to admiration does not exist in him will they say that the honour which he has enjoyed for ages was inspired by that which seems to be his first and literal meaning and more will they venture to impute that literal meaning to him can they suppose that the divine soul of homer could degrade itself to write of actual and physical feastings and nuptials and dances actual nightly thefts of horses actual fidelity of dogs and swineherds actual intermarriages between deities and men or that it is this seeming vulgarity which has won for him from the wisest of every age a title of the father of poetry degrading thought fit only for the coarse and sense-bound tribe who can appreciate nothing but what is palpable to sense and sight as soon believe the christian scriptures when they tell us of a deity who has hands and feet eyes and ears who condescends to command the patterns of furniture and culinary utensils and is made perfect by being born disgusting thought as the son of a village maiden and defiling himself with the wants and sorrows of the lowest slaves End of chapter eight part one